we cannot continue to live in a world where there's continued poverty. That is not sustainable and it is not right. Today on the Second Renaissance, I sit down with Koala Ethical Investment App co-founder and Gunditjmara woman, Dr. Patrice Newell. We decode what the Western world can learn from ancestral and age-old wisdoms of sustainable land management, the cross-fertilization of agricultural management to the world of investing, what she has learned about agriculture and investing as an active organic farmer and entrepreneur, how she farms with her ancestors watching, the rise of regenerative agriculture and biosequestration, and how her passion topic of biochar may play a role in Project Drawdown, and why an ethical investment app may be one small step towards a more equitable tomorrow in alignment with the UN SDGs. Now, a few words on pedigree. An Aboriginal Australian with a PhD in alternative energy, Dr Newell was honoured with an Order of Australia for her services to agriculture and the environment. Patrice is a farmer, best-selling author, beekeeper, podcaster, academic and environmental advocate. Dr Newell produces certified organic food on her 10,000 acre property. Australia's poor response to our climate emergency has triggered the creation of Koala as a simple tool to help people invest directly in companies that take climate change and social equity seriously and address the 17 UN Sustainable Development Goals. The Koala app enables micro-investments in global companies addressing the environmental, social and technological challenges of today. Her latest book is Who's Minding the Farm in This Climate Emergency? quick disclosure. Make sure you do your own research and of course speak to your financial advisor to see whether sustainable investments is for you. This is not a product plug. I found the conversation with Dr. Patrice illuminating and her lived experience an incredible pretext to her finding herself at the intersection of sustainability and fintech and I trust you will too. On with the show, welcome to the second renaissance Patrice. Dr. Patrice Newell, welcome to the Second Renaissance. Great to have you on the show. Thanks for inviting me. Pleasure to be here. And um, can I just ask as well, where where are you dialing in from or where are you beaming in from I'm beaming in from a very hot room in Sydney today. Okay, there you go. So always uh, curious to see where people are and what lands they're beaming in from. So I want to just start off today's show as well, acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we meet and stand, albeit virtually here today, and also pay my respects to the elders, past, present, and future. Dr. Patrice, I came across your uh, work uh, fairly recently, and of course, where I would love us to kind of get kick-started today is in the context of this sort of beautiful intersection of fintech and investment and sustainability. You're the co-founder of a uh, investment app, a sort of micro-investment app called Koala. I'm super curious, what do you guys do? Um, what's the ethos? Uh, why is it different from uh, some of the other apps that are out there? They're all a little bit different, I think, because whoever is inspired to build such a thing, you know, it's formed out of the conversation that you have with your co-founders. And none of us were actually sitting around in our lives thinking, oh, I have to enter the fintech sector and set up a micro-investing app. It evolved out of conversations that started with 
Could the phone and mobile tools facilitate people to manage their money, understand things better? So out of the very general idea, we were just having a conversation. And my fellow co-founders, Peter Bonetto and Jeffrey Zabel, the three of us work full-time in the business now. Jeffrey was doing his master's in Madrid. Peter Bonetto was, you know, director and chairman of various companies. Peter lives near me, so I had more opportunity to do face-to-face -face talk. And gradually, he said, oh, come on, we've got to have a Zoom on this. And we had a Zoom. Three other people came in. We decided we'd pursue the idea of it. Was there really a market for it? What could we say? What we could do? How do we do it? And then after months and months and months and surveys, we all decided it's all very easy, isn't it, to sit around and talk about things. You know, was anyone doing it the way we wanted it done? And if we're really serious, we'll put some money in, register a name and get cracking. So it was a slow evolution. Of course, then you get to a point where all of us had to have that feeling is this really important to us? And guess what? We all agreed it was really important. And after endless conversations, access to financial services, new ones, was important. Was investing a good tool for everybody? And how can people start investing with a little bit of money? Because traditionally, you've got to save money, get enough money, and then invest money, whether it be a house, a car, an investment portfolio. And so what we've done is really said, hey, it's not easy to get into it if you're not living in the world of the finance sector, but let's provide a service so everyone can start and you can start with $10 a week. Fantastic. I mean, financial inclusion is so important and you know it's been highlighted as one of the, the pieces of the puzzle from in the UN Sustainable Development Goals. So you guys are already doing something in that space to, to enable people to, to buy you know, a fractal of a share or, or a company. I'm curious for both our Aussie and you know, our international listeners, some people might think that the app is called Koala, which of course is always associated with Australia, but it's, you, you actually just enlightened me and I said, no, it's uh, two syllables, it's uh, Koala. Uh, any any or, or origin stories to the name? Okay, so the word exists in other forms as languages, etc. elsewhere. But for us, when we were sitting around, the fires had just happened, there was all the conversation about koala habitat. And we were just feeling the passion of this conversation that was happening at the same time we were developing koala, that biodiversity, having a place to live for everybody humans, animals, birds, mycorrhiza, plants, and it was all being confronted in bushfires, droughts, and dramas of the climate emergency. So what is it that children say in the beginning? They say koala before they can say three syllables, koala. So it came, it was born yeah. out of our passion for koalas, correct? There you go. No, I'm always <laughs> curious. There's always something to an origin story like this. So that's a wonderful piece. And certainly in terms of like, you know, the bushfires and Australian habitat and biology, I remember coming out from Sweden to Australia many moons ago and, you know, learning that some trees here and, and some seeds only germinate and, and, and become fertile, so to speak, once there's been a, one of these, you know, momentous events that sadly we're seeing more and more of now um, in Australia, the very, very severe sort of, you know, climate crisis events. 
uh, both floods and bushfires, etc. So thank you for sharing that. I mean, we're living in this era, and I, I picked up uh, The Economist magazine a, a few few months ago, where the general sort of sense was that they were poo-pooing the idea of ESG investments, environmental social governance investments, and you know, there, there's concerns around greenwashing. When you've launched this investments app, I'm fascinated, not just the whole idea of micro-investments, which I find really, really empowering, particularly as we say for you know our one-year-old and our five-year-old with a view, with a view to the future and, and a sustainable, better tomorrow land. But how do you make sure that that sort of skepticism and, and, and the sense of concerns around greenwashing doesn't play a part in, in, in adoption of what is on the merits and based on your PDS, of course, all the listeners and viewers, make sure you do your independent financial research on all of this, talk to your financial advisor, all the rest, all the other disclosures. But how do you communicate the merits of your portfolio and, and what do you invest in? A lot of questions there you brought up. Sorry, yeah, it's a brief preamble, wasn't it? If you go back, all products like Koala have to meet standards. So we designed a product. We have a management company, Cash, which help us facilitate the action. So I've decided to do $10 a week. Well, obviously, some shares might be $1,000. So how do they buy this share? Because they all exist within a fund. So a Koala customer buys into a fund and there's approximately 200 companies in it because there's ETFs and there's companies. And we include in the portfolio so everybody can see all the companies in those ETFs, not just the top five. So in the end, it adds up to quite a lot of companies. So we presented that to our managers. They reviewed it. We had to write up a PDS, the Product Disclosure Statement. We had to work out who our target audience was. We had the investment option list, which explained very clearly what we wanted and what we didn't want. And it is important for anyone new to investments to always read those documents. The charts in those documents make it quite simple to see what it's about. Now, in the end, they said, well, what does this mean then? You're going through a theme, which is an ESG theme that's written up in the product disclosure statement. So they were themes of, as you pointed out, environmental, social and governance. So that was a theme that we were concentrating on. We all believed in a climate emergency. That's why the ESG thing was important for us. And then they said, well, okay, this is quite a risky portfolio. So you get graded, is it low risk, a high risk portfolio? And then they said, okay, it's a higher risk portfolio. So it needs to really work over an eight year period. So we are not for people that are interested in just trading shares, you know, having a gamble. It's not about any of that. It's about people who are interested in understanding the stock market and the global financial economy and interesting companies that are doing interesting work to build a better economy. So all of the stuff that we stand for is in black and white on our website for everybody to see. People challenge a lot of it. And as you know, there's the big law case in America now, all the red states saying it's absolutely wrong. You shouldn't have ESG anywhere because a financial advisor is really about making you money, right? So if an ESG lens distracts from that, that's bad. And I think that's been at the foreground of hardcore financial advisors and the industry saying, we didn't do a bad job. They manage people's money. They've been doing it for yonks. 
The issue is now there are customers out there that don't want their invested dollar in certain types of companies. And that's where we are. So it's classified as risky. I don't know, is it worse than you're buying a house and having an airport and the value of it decrease because you're under a, you know what I mean? Everything's got a level of risk. To me, what I'm proudest of is you just start little, see how you feel. If it doesn't feel right, you stop. Mm. But you see, you've got to be in it to understand it, to see whether investing works as a type of financial tool for your future. Yeah, because I think those questions are being asked more and more. I mean, we're seeing, you know, banks in Australia, like Beyond Bank and Bank Australia becoming certified as B Corps. And certainly, uh, you know, a certain type of investor and, and even conscious consumer is taking their banking matters to a bank like that because they're going, they're asking questions, you know, mm. where are mm. my deposits being used? So these questions are being asked more and more. What, what, are you, what are you seeing in terms of investor interest? Like who's the typical audience that you're speaking to? Or is it really cross-generational? What are you seeing in terms of take-up? It is cross-generational to me, but we've only been going three months. So we've only just started. But we are finding that millennial age, but it's not really age-related. It's more people. And you don't have to be really at the bottom of the socioeconomic pool. You could be living in a very middle-class family with parents that don't talk to you about money. And this was a really big surprise when we did our early surveys. We'd be having meetings. You know, my friend, you know, she's the head of this really big company and she's too nervous to do it because she's never had even people with really significant jobs who you would think would have an investment portfolio actually didn't. And why didn't they? Because they're nervous is really why. And often, I think when you get a little bit older, you're too embarrassed to say you don't know stuff. I mean, that's one of the things why it's really important to feel a level of confidence so that you can admit really to yourself, you know, what you know and what you don't know. And that is another thing I really like about the app because it doesn't cost you a lot to participate. And then you can feel very in the privacy of your, you know, comfy chair, just work out what you feel about it. And that is important Mm. because there's quite a lot to learn. There's no doubt about that. There's a lot to learn. Reading up on your background, you know, you've got a fascinating story. And I think beyond the world of investment, again, your life story is one that I find really, really inspiring. You're a Gundich Mara woman. Do I say it correctly? You did. Gundich Mara, yeah. Of Aboriginal descent. And one of the articles I read, you said something to the effect of, because you're also a farmer, you have a farm up in the uh, Hunter Valley. You said that you now farm under the watchful eye of your ancestors, which I find really sort of a bit of a goosebump moment. I'm curious if you want to just share a little bit about your background and the sort of ancestral wisdom and how also farming and maybe some of the metaphors or, or lessons from the land can be applied in this, you know, sustainable investing space as well. Personally, my story is I'm adopted and like many people adopted in the 20th century before the laws changed around the 80s. Adoption laws are state laws, so not each state had the same law. And I was born in Adelaide and I was adopted there at the age of three months. 
I only found out, and it's sort of another story which I won't go into, when I had a 12-year-old daughter that my mother, who I have never met, who killed herself, was a Gunjit Mara woman. Now, her name was Mary Owens, but Mary Owens had her brother, Patrick Owens, alive. And he was living in the Aboriginal aged care facility in Brunswick in Melbourne. And I learnt when I found out that she lost her mother at a young age. And my mother spent most of her time in a Catholic orphanage in Ballarat. So my birth mother's life is a sad life. But what it did for me as someone who didn't know who I was, and even my husband said, Oh, that makes complete sense. It was an absolute light bulb moment for me to suddenly connect with what I probably felt deep inside but couldn't articulate or understand. Anyway, I got to know Patrick before he passed away and I got to know other members of my mob during the next decade or so. And then eventually I went down to Bim, which is a World Heritage Site, a Gunjutmara eel trap farming agricultural site and When I went there, that was this absolute amazing feeling of, oh, my God, my ancestors were part of this extraordinary sustainable land management site that's been going for over 3,000 years. And there were huts, these stone huts, and all the traps were still there. And I just felt, I felt so proud and really I was interested in water reform. I still am part of water keepers, part of the irrigation network. I was part of lots of water committees. And why wouldn't I have been when I think that my ancestors were part of living in this remarkable community, a sustainable one that had been going for thousands and thousands of years. So my experience as someone interested in sustainability, ignorant of her Aboriginal background, has given me, I suppose, a different take. Because I noticed in LinkedIn this week even, sustainability positions are one of the top new jobs. And then I looked in and said, exactly what does someone do in that? And they have to make sure that the formatting for the company and the, you know, all the boxes are ticked for the company. And I think that is such a different introduction or participation in sustainability than I had. As a farmer, trying to piece together the core fundamental sustainability principles, which is to look after this land, this 10,000 acres of land, and make sure it's better when I leave it and not worse, but be productive and use it with love and care. I mean, I think, yeah, it makes so much sense. And to have that sort of, you know, those ancestral echoes and the wisdom from, you know, thousands of years ago still still play out in the modern interest in, you know, sustainable aquaculture and, you know, looking after farms. I mean, there's all these trendy terms like regenerative farming and biosequestration and Aussie landowners are now selling carbon credits or whatever it happens to be. I mean, it seems to have sort of gone full circle but i mean what, what what do you think like what can the western world you know the you know the modern economy what can we learn from first nations peoples i think i mean what are the odds of me being a land manager when i found out i mean am i the luckiest person in the world on that regard and yet the biggest issue for so many indigenous australians is that they've been removed from their land. I'm farming in Wanarua land, and I speak to you today from Gadigal land, 
But my ancestral land is Gunjitmara land, which is Warrnambool, Port Ferry, that area. So it's taken us a long time to really appreciate the sustainable, integrated way all the different First Nations of Australia lived, where everything wasn't separated out. You know, they never had those stupid conversations where, oh, we have to be efficient first before we can become sustainable, because they recognised very, very deeply that nature is the essential provider for their life. And it still remains that today. You know, the old saying, we live in an ecology, not an economy, holds true more than ever. And can you remember that every time you ordered six bananas when you really should have only ordered three and might have to throw them out because you can't even be bothered making banana cake? So it is manifested our wastefulness, our disconnection to things, whereas I think First Nation everywhere, they have a connection that we can all, all learn from. I mean, it's a stimulating sort of thought experiment. Pharmaceutical companies have been, uh, you know, borrowing from ancient wisdom and ancient healing methods for a very, very long time. But now it seems like the rest of the economy is sort of waking up and borrowing wisdom from our ancestors. Um, so you're a bit of a polymath, Patrice. Fintech startup founder. You've written several books. You've been on television. You've spent a lot of time in New York. You've also written this fantastic book, Who's Minding the Farm in This Climate Emergency? You're an active farmer, you're a beekeeper. Why the move into fintech and sustainable investing, given all of these other things you've got going on? Well, aren't you interested in a lot of things? You know, if we lead a long life, we do different things. When I grew up, a lot of people, well, right from the get-go at high school, I was really interested in chemistry and physics. I may not have been really fabulous at it, okay, but I got told that unless I wanted to be a doctor, it wasn't worth doing. Now, I mean, imagine if someone said that to my daughter and she really loved chemistry and physics, I'd be very upset with the teacher and be telling my daughter, well, forget it. If you want to do it, do it. A lot of people tell people not to do things for weird reasons. So my call out to anybody is we've all got a right to tackle anything that we are interested in, that we know and are prepared to make a commitment to. So you're correct, I've been a farmer. When I say full-time farmer, that's correct. I've lived there for 37, 38 years now. However, I did do a PhD. I did try to get elected to parliament too. So that took about a year out back then. I did a PhD on bioenergy with a focus on biochar. That took about four years out too. But the farm is a business and there's always been staff there. And as I've got older and don't really feel I can hack, really, the physical work of agriculture, that was a defining thing in saying, well, financial inequality was always important to me because I grew up with no money. I grew up without parents who ever had a conversation with me about money, except one important thing, which was never overspend, live within your means. And I think that probably rang a few bells for me too, for Koala, because $10 a week now, I think, is doable for a lot of people, particularly right now when you're struggling with all your financial things, where you've got this high inflation rate. So that's one thing. Why not, I suppose, mm. is the thing. Yeah. It's not like I wasn't engaged. And when I was trying to get elected to parliament, I 
because I know people who are fund managers. When I was trying to get elected to parliament, I went and talked to a few of them saying, look, we want to run on a climate change ticket. You know, what do you think? We're having conversations. And they were very disinterested. They did not back in 2007. The ones I spoke to were not that interested in climate change. I did get some financial assistance for the campaign from a couple, which was great. But most financial people that I spoke to were not interested. And that upset me, I remember at the time. And then I had another experience which probably had an impact on me. I had, it must have been from a book advance, I had about $10,000 and I thought, oh, maybe I could do some investing. And I said, oh, I hear you're helping people invest their money. He said, yeah. He said, you got a spare mill? I said, no. Well, when you get a spare mill, give us a tingle. And I remember thinking, wow, I have to have a million spare, excuse me, for me to get into this club that I thought I might have been able to have got into with $10,000. And that was a big shock. And it made me think, wow, if I'm saying that, what is everybody else out there thinking? It's a club and you can't get into it. It's complicated. So we're trying to uncomplicate it. Yeah, and maybe, I mean, it almost sounds like based upon your, you know, your First Nations heritage, the, the, the farming, the sustainable agriculture, the, the biochar, which we'll get to, you know, alternative energy. In a sense, it's sort of the, you know, the perfect convergence of all your various backgrounds that have sort of funneled into very much a moment in time now. Anyway, tell us a little bit about uh, biochar, because that's also been featured in Paul Hawkins' book, Project Drawdown, and biosequestration is trending as an idea when, when people are thinking about carbon capture and storage and all the rest. Enlighten us. What is what is biochar and what promise does it hold? Okay, I'm glad you're saying it's trending. I feel like it's been trending for quite some time. It hasn't quite got to the top of the trend hill yet. Okay, 101 biochar, it is created. Any biomass anywhere can be chopped up and put into a pyrolyzer and heated to a high temperature over 400 degrees without oxygen and out the other end, you usually get three things. You get biochar, which is charcoal, so a solid. You get a liquid and you get a gas. When I first heard about biochar, it was the carbon sequestration quality of the biochar. And it was all happening with the discovery in Latin America, where lots of indigenous people along the Amazon and now archaeologists are finding little towns everywhere where they chopped down the forest, used it for their cooking, buried it, and that carbon in all the pits up the Amazon were found to be sequestering carbon. Some of it was really 2,000 years old. And they thought, we've got to do it. We've got to modernise this technology, start sequestering so that there's never any biomass waste anymore. We're going to sequester it and we're going to build biology in the course of it. So that was, for me, getting excited about, all. Think of all the trees, all the prudings of my olive grove, right? I got excited about that. But as I got into it, and certainly like all PhDs, they change a bit, I realised that you don't want to just chop down anything. And if slow pyrolysis, this heating mechanism, gives you three products, it's not just biochar anymore. Biochar is one byproduct of a slow pyrolysis system. But what I really still love, and I'm going to tell you one quick little story about how it's really working really well now in Australia, is that the idea of never wasting, like growing things, is renewable. Converting it 
getting a product like char that can sequester carbon, you've got gas which can be converted to electricity, and you've got a liquid, they call it pyroligneous acid, pyro, fire, heated by acid. It's fabulous research you mentioned earlier about after fires, remember, lots of plants sprout, and they're using pyroligneous acid now in nurseries and germinating seed as a trigger because it's the liquid, I guess, that was formed in nature. So you don't necessarily then need the fire, you just need no. the liquid to... you're yeah. using the pyroligneous acid. And pyroligneous acid has been used right through Asia as a liquid, it's a fertilizer. It's this unusual thing because every pyroligneous acid that is created is unique to what is pyrolyzed. So I can see in the future, you'll pyrolyze rosemary bushes and get a medicinal out of it. Whatever you're pyrolyzing, you get a different liquid. So we're using it on the farm now, mm. just sort of working our way. So I've sprayed it 100%, not to get rid of a weed, and then to get rid of an insect on a really low level on the olive grove. So what we're talking about here is slow pyrolysis is a type of bioenergy. And I'm fascinated by that approach. Silly question, but are there emissions associated with the process of pyrolysis? Yeah, and when you get down to, and this has been what's really interesting, the life cycle analysis of everything now, we're entering the new conversation in the circular economy, Every action uses energy, has an impact. How do you measure all that? I can see we can get really bogged down with too much measurement. But for instance, there's a fabulous operation now using a wonderful slow pyrolysis system that uses the heat of the gas for a greenhouse. And you know those herbs and spices you buy in the cellophane packs? They're using it. And then the biochar is being mixed into a compost mix afterwards. So that's a really interesting cycle where it is already operating here. So I can see the future. I think it is very exciting. It's better if it's small operations, small things that can be done. But a lot has to fit. Transport, the biggest one. Where does the biomass come from? So it's not simple, but it's exciting because biomass is renewable. Yeah. And I mean, even, you know, listening to the CEO of Emirates, who was recently out here for the Australian Open, talking about aviation and sustainable aviation fuels, you know, they're talking about bioenergy and, and, and biomass. Yep. And we call it slow pyrolysis that does biochar, but it's fast pyrolysis that's doing the aviation fuel. Yeah. We talked a little bit about inequality and financial inequality being amongst the UN SDGs. What do you imagine? I mean, pe people in Australia are talking about cost of living, there's inflationary concerns, there's, you know, recession concerns, there's always in, in Australia at any, any barbecue, you know, people are talking about the price of property and, and getting into the property market. What do you fo foresee? You've talked about, you know, people almost like a little slap in the face saying, hey, your $10,000 were not enough. Can you see this, you know, idea of fractal investing or, or micro investing really becoming a sort of groundswell movement that, you know, perhaps 50 years in the future, people will be going, our ancestors invented this. You know, well, like what, what's, what's your vision for, for micro investing, I guess, um, when we're looking back 50 or 100 years from now? I think micro investing, it will be grade one, maybe. Let's face it, when we look at the Hilda report, you know, the Hilda report in Victoria that showed we're becoming not more financially literate, but less. And if we 
really believe in equality, money has to be shared more. What are we sharing in a sharing society? If money makes the world go round, it makes part of it go round, but it doesn't make love go round or happiness go round. But it enables us to find happiness and love because no money in the Western world is equivalent or not enough money is equivalent to poverty. And we cannot continue to live in a world where there's continued poverty. That is not sustainable and it is not right. So all the tools that are in place to help the individual, I mean, I do believe in market restructures, don't get me wrong. I don't think everything's about the individual, but individuals need tools to help them. But I know a lot of people who are very well educated who have Koala accounts like the simplicity of it. So simplicity is not something just to a newbie. You know, simplicity is something that can be appreciated by a lot of people too. Mm. I'm always struck by the adjacencies and, you know, lateral thinking, but also I guess the, the power of linguistics and metaphor. And in the world of investing, there are so many metaphors that we borrow from agriculture you know, whether it's harvesting profits or yields or, you know, you reap what you sow and, you know, market growth. I mean, these are all sort of based upon, you know, the cyclical nature of agriculture and, and nature, ecology. Why do you think that is? Like, why do we borrow so much from agriculture? And is there a lesson just from the land when it comes to, you know, smarter and, and sustainable investing into the future? Well, I guess in the early days when you know, the business of the world was really more sustainable when the dyes for fabric were all plant-based, you know, wool and linen and cotton. So when you think about what we're entering into the metallurgical more and the plastic world, and I would say I grew up, we had no plastic. I think the amount of rubbish we put out was negligible. We grew veggies in the back garden, had fruit trees in the backyard. It was simpler. Did we feel we were deprived? Not in a million years. So this concept now of, I guess, bringing it back to basics, and that has by nature agriculture, why agriculture is more important than ever, especially if the bioenergy industry can get legs. I really hope I live to see it because particularly when we have EV tractors, years ago I said, I'm not, never going to buy another tractor until it's electric. Well, that's not going to happen, I don't think. I probably just have a really old tractor. But in the future, farmers will have much better tools. They'll be manufactured and, you know, we'll all have solar panels. We'll be able to generate the electricity. I think it's ex very exciting. Mm -hmm. And then the sort of rehab that will go on where all the mining is undertaken. You know, we're still going to need steel. Maybe one day we won't need coal to make it. Maybe they'll be able to use biochar mm -hmm. to make steel. So steel's energy cost will be reduced. So I feel hopeful. I think there's so many smart people out there who are going to do it. I have faith. I don't have faith in greedy people with vested interests who seem to get in the way of plenty of good renewable ideas. Mm. Green steel might be the next trend. Patrice, in the, in the future, one day when you are the ancestor, what do you want to see future generations farming or investing it, say 30, 40 years down 
the track? I would say to instinctively go back to a world where we don't waste and where we're kind to everybody, where if I had to paint my picture of the perfect world where there isn't the racism that there is today, where there isn't lack of access to so many things that people are locked away from, whether it be education or healthcare or access to financial tools that work for them, whatever that may be, that we can somehow develop a better life system where we all get a shot because, you know, really we all deserve and the world's better when people are happy. We can't have this continuation where so many are being left out of the riches of this extraordinary country. And I mean, a cap nod to innovation and futurism and the modern world of innovation and, and the cloud, etc. It's it's almost sort of ironic that some of these ways that we can return to a you know to a circular economy that we can invest in sustainable organisations and that the way we can boost you know financial literacy and maybe you know rejuvenate financial literacy you know a lot of this sort of cap nod to ancient wisdoms actually now come through the digital interface of a uh, micro investment app called koala (laughs) so uh, thank you for bringing that to the world and thank you for being on the on the second renaissance and uh, talking about the idea of creativity within planetary constraints great to have you on the show great to chat all the best thanks For more information about the Second Renaissance and our work on sustainable innovation, please visit my website, www.andersumanilson.com. We would appreciate if you can take a moment to share the podcast with a friend or a colleague and help build the movement. We hope that what we learn together on the Second Renaissance can help us all build a sustainable future for ourselves and our children. See you in the near future.